Hello, my name is Michael Trainer. I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Adelaide, a senior lecturer in Biblical Studies with the Australian Catholic University, located at the Adelaide campus of the, of the ACU. I'm also a priest of the parish of Lockleys in South Australia. And I'm about to embark on a presentation or a series of presentations on the Gospel of Mark. It is a compelling and wonderful Gospel, the, the shortest of the four, and the basis, the Gospel that's the basis for two Gospels, Luke and, Luke and Matthew. So in this session, in this introductory session, what I would like to do is give an overview of the Gospel itself, say something about the context of Mark's gospel and world, uh, Mark's world and the Roman world, and then how to go about reading or rather hearing Mark. I'll always talk about the listeners of the gospel rather than the readers of the gospel. That's my predilection because the gospel was quote unquote performed. It was presented by a, by a proclaimer and the way that pro proclaimer offered the gospel, offered also an interpretation to the listeners in the Markan household. Before we enter into the, this uh, in, uh, context of Mark and the gospel, I want to talk about the three worlds of the gospel. These three worlds are important for understanding how to go about interpreting not only the Gospels, but any form of biblical literature. These three worlds, and in the particular the Gospel, uh, when dealing with the Gospel of Mark, consists of, first of all, the world of the Gospel itself, the text of Mark. Mark writes in Greek, we have various English translations. The one that I'll be working with is usually the Revised Standard Version, which has been updated in the last 20 years or so to the New Revised Standard Version, but because I work closely with the Greek text as well next to the RSV, then I'll always divert to the RSV. So when we think of the first world, the world of the Gospel, it's the world of the narrative, the narrative dynamic that occurs within the Gospel itself. The second world, and this is the world that will in, um, uh, will be of interest to us in this session, the world behind the Gospel. In other words, what's the world, the Greco-Roman world that Mark, Mark's author presumes? Uh, what are the, what's the context, the history of that world in which the Gospel writer writes the Gospel to a particular audience located in time and space? And a final world, the world uh, that we will reflect on very briefly at the end of our presentations is the world in front of the Gospel. It's our world. How does, how does the Gospel of Mark, written in a different time and place, speak into the world, my world, that I'm engaged with at the moment? It's these three worlds interacting with one another that brings about an interpretation that's relevant for today's situation, for our own world. And it, it prevents us from being what are called fundamentalists or literalists, people that see the gospel stories as though they were 
live streaming of the Galilean Jesus of the 30s or videotape replays or um, CCTV recordings of what Jesus did and said. What we need to remember is, of course, the gospel is based on the story of Jesus of Nazareth of the, of the 30s. But by the time Mark comes to write the gospel, uh, then we are aware uh, by the, and we think this happens around the year 70, that uh, the story of Jesus has been reflected on, passed on by word of mouth, and shaped or adapted to the circumstances of the listeners until finally the key preaching person, the, the person who has contact with that earliest generation of Jesus' disciples, that key person has died and there comes a need then to write down the story for subsequent generations of believers, of followers of Jesus. So Mark's Gospel is written, formulated on the memory of the words and the deeds of Jesus, and particularly on his death and resurrection, and uh, reshaped by the preachers to make the story relevant to a new audience. So we're dealing with a world that's in the Mediterranean, a Mediterranean world, not a world uh, that's Australian, certainly not a world of the 21st century, but a world of the first century, around the mid to later part of the first century. A Roman world, a Greco-Roman world, though probably with a more Roman emphasis than a Greek-Roman emphasis. So then I moved to talk about what is a gospel. A gospel is a unique form of literature in the ancient world. The, the name gospel, the word gospel, uh, from the Greek evangelion, means good news. So it refers to the good news of salvation, a point which, say, Paul makes in his first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 2, and repeats it in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, or 2 Corinthians 2, 12, or in Romans 1, 1, or in Romans 1, 16. This good news uh, is an echo of the theme of good tidings that comes to us out of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52 verse 7 of Isaiah where Isaiah writes how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings who publishes peace who brings good tidings of good who publishes salvation who says to Zion your God reigns so the gospel is good news it's not bad news and the word uh, the, the Greek word for gospel reflects that ancient Hebrew root basar, uh, B-S-R, the, the consonants of the Hebrew word, meaning joyful or important message delivered by a designated messenger, a point that Harrington makes in his commentary in the Sacropagina series that I'll be referring to in the course of these presentations. And we also know the language of gospel is, uh, comes up even in um, Roman inscriptions. There's a, there's a very famous one uh, about uh, dealing with Augustus's birth around nine, uh, the year nine in the Common Era, where the inscription reads, the birthday of the God, which is uh, the emperor, 
was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, there's that word, which have been proclaimed on his account. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on his account. So the gospel, the story of Jesus, is intended to be joyful tidings. And one could sense that the gospel of Jesus will be in tension with the so-called gospel or joyful tidings dealing with the Emperor Augustus. It's such an important word that Paul uses it in his letters uh, over 60 times. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is, of course, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the gospel. He is the bringer of the good news. And his good news is about the inbreaking of the reign of God. Uh, sometimes the, this, the, the, the Greek word behind the word reign, sometimes translated also as kingdom, is the word basileia. It's a feminine noun and it refers to the inbreaking of God's presence revealed through the words and deeds of Jesus. And uh, the, the community of Jesus' followers, a community which I call the household, because they would have gathered in households in the ancient world, certainly up until the fourth century, the household gathers around Jesus as the concrete manifestation of this gospel. So the gospel is the gathering, uh, is the reflection, is the very person, as it were, of Jesus. And it's the people that gather around him, his disciples forming that kind of household that manifests the gospel. Uh, and it's this gospel then is the experience and the, the encounter of the basileia of the reign through the ministry of Jesus and was proclaimed through the first disciples of Jesus. They proclaim the gospel. Their experience was communicated to others who became disciples of Jesus. They formed households of followers outside of Israel in the Greco-Roman world as the message about Jesus spread beyond uh, Israel, beyond uh, Palestina. So on the death of the founding preacher of the household, wherever that household might exist, of the death of the disciple who witnessed to Jesus' words and deeds, or who knew those who were directly aware and had witnessed to Jesus' words and deeds, on the death of that connecting link, these households realized their need to encapsulate in writing what they had been told about Jesus. So the gospel then is the experience then of the basileia from Jesus and continued through the household of disciples finally becomes expressed in written form. So there's a development from the gospel, who's Jesus, to the expression of that gospel in written form, which becomes now known as the, of the gospel. So the experience of the gospel of Jesus is externalized in concrete written form by the earliest Jesus households. Hence, the Gospels as we know them come into shape. So the Gospel itself goes through three stages in its development, or three moments you could say in the form in their formation. 
The first is, of course, the foundation of the gospel on the very ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. We know that Jesus adapts that message according to the circumstances of his audience. So Jesus acts and speaks about the presence of God. That's the heart of his ministry, that God is in communion with humanity and with creation, seeking to bring it to a sense of union, of communion with God's own being. That's the preaching and the teaching of Jesus, and that's the first part, the first stage, as it were, in the gospel formation. The second occurs as the first preachers adapt and shape their message about Jesus according to the Jewish and the Greco-Roman context of their respective audiences. So the preachers um, want to allow that story of Jesus to be relevant and in their relevance and their desire for such relevance, they have to use language that shapes and, and reworks the story so it is heard uh, clearly by their audiences. That's the second stage. And then the third stage is the evangelists, those that write down uh, their, the evangelists themselves of the households, the gatherings of Jesus' followers. They themselves write down what they have heard about Jesus. Again, they adapt and they shape the story in such a way that addresses the relevant uh, concerns and pastoral issues of the members of their gatherings, of their gospel gatherings, of these gospel households. So when we think of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they encapsulate the meaning of the gospel, Jesus, for later households of disciples in different cultural and, in, and historical settings. Settings that are different from the cultural and historical setting of the Galilean Jesus of the 30s. So it's important to note that the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus or eyewitness des des descriptions of what exactly happened or what Jesus said. These are not live streaming accounts. They are not stenographic recordings of what Jesus uh, actually said and did. They are founded on events surrounding Jesus' ministry, witnessed by disciples and spoken about by them. These were then mediated upon, or rather, they were meditated upon in gospel households and mediated to the communities around uh, that formed these house households through the writings, through the preaching first and then the writings of the gospels later. So the gospels became or become mediated reflections on the meaning of Jesus' ministry. They seek to reveal how God was at work in Jesus, bringing about liberation to humanity and to creation called that's what i'm calling the basilia the rain uh, or the kingdom as it's translated in, into english and how this liberation is still active through the community of disciples in history so central to the dynamic of the written gospels is the memory of eyewitnesses and the role of the household of disciples uh, they reflect on the story of Jesus, communicated through the founding preachers, who remember the eyewitness traditions that lay at the heart of the gospel story. So the gospels are not fabrications, they're not inventions, they're founded on the deeds and the words of the historical Jesus. So that's a more, 
What I've presented is a very general background to the Gospels themselves. What I'd like to do now is move more closely into interpreting Mark. How do we go about, how has Mark been interpreted? Well, historically, uh, when we look back on the history of the interpretation of Mark, uh, for many, it's a biography of Jesus, what Jesus actually said and did. Well, we've moved from that. Uh, in the medieval period, it was seen as an, an analogy. What happens in the Gospels becomes an, 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 an analogy for how Christians should live in the present time. Um, for some, the Gospels were pre-scientific. Therefore, they were untrust untrustworthy because they came from a, a mythological age where science was not appreciated. In, in more recent years, more recent generations, really uh, one could say from the um, earlier part of the 20th century, what started to emerge was the appreciation of the historical context of the Gospels the historical, what we call the critical context, try to understand the history in which the Gospels themselves are written. And then also other approaches like literary approaches of the Gospel of Mark have been keys. So what I'm naming now are some of the approaches that scholars have found helpful in trying to understand Mark. So the historical context, its literary features, also the cultural and social scientific context of the world of Mark. To understand that has enabled scholars and um, contemporary readers to appreciate Mark's gospel. In more recent generations, and particularly in the perhaps the latter part of the 20th century, more liberationist and feminist understandings emerged. So if a text like Mark is written from an androcentric bias, uh, in other words, males are more important and only visible in the text. What about those who are the characters that are part of a story that are invisible, like the women in the story? So there's been a wonderful development in feminist, what we call feminist hermeneutics, that's enabled us to recover the uh, invisible figures that are part of the gospel narrative. Another approach is what could be called intertexture, how one text of the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, relies upon previous texts, uh, texts that are important for uh, understanding uh, narrative and literary sources that the Gospel writer could have drawn upon. How do we understand the text visually? What do we see when we uh, engage the, the Gospel? And finally, as we come to, uh, to uh, engaging the gospel, it is an engagement. It's not just um, trying to hear a story and read it and, and um, memorize it. How does the gospel touch us? How does it engage the world in front of the text? How does it touch our world? And there are a number of approaches in terms of prayer, like Lexia Divina or even uh, Auditio Divina, praying, praying with a, uh, a very uh, slow reading of the story in a meditative form to deepen one's prayer experience of the gospel or even listening to it slowly uh, enabling that. So this Lexio Divina and this Auditio Divina are approaches that have been um, helpful. So in summary, the gospel of Mark is good news. It's about good news. It's not about bad news.
It's about good news, how God is being revealed through the story of Jesus. It's, it's what I would call Christological. It's focused on Jesus. It's Christological. It's about Jesus. But the gospel is also theological. It's about God. It's about Jesus' story of God revealed in the story of Jesus. And it also concerns uh, how do we respond to Jesus and God revealed in the story of Jesus, the story or God's story in Jesus. So it concerns discipleship. How do we as disciples respond to God revealed to us through the story of Mark? I've already mentioned and perhaps need to say a bit more about the importance of the household. So we're not dealing with an, uh, an amorphous group of people. We're dealing with a, a community of Jesus' disciples gathered in a location, a historical and cultural location. And that gives the gospel itself some flesh in, in the context of the household. So I'll, I'll be talking a lot about the household of Mark. I won't be saying much about the church. Churches don't exist, of course, until the fourth century. And it's a, a gospel that comes up in a oral, oral world. Oral in terms of the word of mouth and oral, uh, oral in the terms of hearing. It's an oral, oral uh, dynamic that occurs when we hear the gospel of Mark. And key to this is the role of the eyewitnesses. Mark, Mark's gospel is based on what others have seen and heard about Jesus and gets placed in the household and it gets remembered within the household setting, within the household community. Just a word or two about Mark's background. So this is something to do with the, the world behind the text. Many scholars would argue, or would suggest, that Rome is a, is a conceivable uh, urban setting for the gospel. Uh, I would... Uh, strongly support this position, though I'm not married to it. I, I think it's a, a, an arguable position. Some scholars would argue for other, other perhaps other urban environments in the Roman world. Whatever the situation, I think it's an urban gospel. There are some scholars who would think, who have argued for a more rural setting, but the language and the visual, the, the visual architecture of the gospel suggests to me an urban setting. I think it's written for Jesus' households of a Greco-Roman world. I don't know how many households, maybe one or two or maybe a three, but it's not a large audience. It's not a universal audience. It's an audience of a, maybe a couple of households located in a particular urban setting, maybe Rome, but whatever the, uh, whatever the historical location in the 70s and the urban location, looking through the gospel, it's addressing a situations, a situation of upheaval, upheaval, change and tension. It's, uh, it, it, you get a feel as you read the gospel and it becomes a kind of a window into the world of the, the audience that there's tension in, within the community to the point that Jesus is presented as one who's both misunderstood and he's alone. That theme, that Christological image, that portrait of Jesus being misunderstood and being alone 
can be traced throughout the whole gospel right up to the moment of Jesus' death. He dies as a solitary, misunderstood figure. And I think what Mark is doing here is crafting a portrait of, the, of Jesus that would speak into followers of Jesus addressed by the gospel who themselves feel misunderstood and alone in their commitment. And, and when, when, when you read how the disciples, or when rather you listen to how the disciples react to Jesus, they react in, to him both not understanding him and that dullness of understanding and what could be described as it will be in the, in the gospel as a dullness of heart or even a hardness of heart, that seems to grow as the story unfolds. And the second point about disciples is they seem to be divided. And maybe what Mark is doing, uh, the author of the gospel, what Mark is doing is crafting a portrait, a very portrait, a portrait rather, of the very situation of the Mark and household itself, what's going on when the gospel is written. And hence the gospel is written in such a way to speak powerfully to the very experience that the audience of the gospel are receiving. A final point uh, that I want to make uh, concerns this language of a household. So we're dealing with a, a, a structure that is well known, a structure that uh, helps us to understand some of the visual, the visual images that occur in, each, in, in many of the stories that Mark's presuming this kind of Greco-Roman structure uh, that I'll, I'll speak uh, about. And finally, just a word about the author. Even though um, we, we, uh, the, the gospel was given the title, The Gospel According to Mark, so it was personalized, and you get the, the sense of the personal character of the author, we don't know who Mark was. Even though Papias in the second century talks about him being Mark being the companion of Peter, and so uh, so this um, understanding developed that what we have here is Peter's gospel developed through Mark. I would suggest, and we also know that the earliest manuscripts uh, don't have any titles to the gospel. It's not until the, the late uh, second, early third century that the titles were given to the gospels. But what was clear uh, in doing this by, by eventually in giving titles, names to each of the four Gospels was, first of all, to personalize the Gospel. It just could not be abstract. And secondly, the names Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were either companions to the Apostles or they themselves were of the earliest uh, foundational level, uh, the first witnesses to the story of Jesus. In other words, these Gospels were given such a faithful uh, emphasis that they wanted, uh, when the names were finally attributed to the Gospels, they wanted to connect them to the earliest group of witnesses to the story of Jesus because the Gospels were perceived to be and believed to be faithful uh, communications of what it was to be a disciple and who Jesus was and is to be for the people that the, the Gospels addressed. So again, uh, Mark is an anonymous, we don't know who Mark is, the author of the Gospel is, however we'll call it, call the author Mark.
And finally, I just want to say a word or two about the overall structure of the gospel. And I'll pick this up in the first presentation or the next presentation when we begin when we begin to move uh, more closely uh, as we move more closely through the text. The gospel begins in chapter one, verse one, and I'm going to come back to this in our next session uh, with what I call the title in the overview. It gives us a, a sense of what the whole gospel is about. It's more than just a verse that introduces the gospel. It's actually an, an overview of the whole gospel. Then it moves, Mark moves into a prologue in chapter 1, verses 2 to 15, uh, setting the scene, the, the, the cosmic scene for the introduction of Jesus, who comes out of the desert. And then from chapter 1, verse 16, through to chapter 8, verse 21, we have the revelation of Jesus through what he says and what he does, but also what begins to emerge is the, is the tension from the Jewish authorities and even the beginnings of um, problems with his own disciples. That leads us uh, really to the heart of a, a catechism, a teaching on discipleship from chapter 8 verses 22 to chapter 10 verse 52, which is a, a section of the gospel framed by the healing of someone who's blind. It both begins with the story of someone who's blind, the healing of a blind person, chapter 8, 22, and concludes with the healing of somebody blind, the blind figure of Bartimaeus in chapter 10, uh, uh, 1 to 52, uh, which is preceded by a final teaching on Jesus' suffering and death. Now, these this frame of healing... Uh, both begins and ends this teaching on discipleship because the primary issue is seeing, not physically seeing, but deeply seeing who Jesus is. And it's clear that the disciples themselves are starting to become blind or wanting to become blind because they don't want to follow someone who's going to death. So that section of of the gospel from chapter 8 to 10 is uh, significant for understanding discipleship. That leads us, le leads us then to Jerusalem in chapter 11 where Jesus enters Jerusalem. There's conflict uh, with the Sanhedrin, with the authorities. Uh, that finally, this section concludes in chapter 13 with Jesus' uh, apocalyptic teaching, teaching about the end time in chapter 13. And then finally, it moves us then to the story of Jesus' uh, passion and death and resurrection from chapters 14, verse 1 uh, to 16, verse 8. Um, and there are other stories added later to Mark's gospel after the original gospel finished with the resurrection account. And I'll say more about those later verses at another time. So um, the story of Mark... Uh, follows uh, a logical uh, a logical geographical pattern. It begins in the desert, it moves to Galilee, and then there's this one journey that Jesus has from Galilee up to Jerusalem, ending in his, his passion, his death. And finally, the final story that concludes the gospel is uh, the story of Jesus' resurrection. 
Everything points to Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, one, one scholar, Martin Keller, writing, a German scholar writing in the uh, 19th century, described the Gospels as passion narratives with lengthy introductions. And we see this in Mark. Everything uh, anticipates what's going to happen at the end of the Gospel in the last two chapters, Jesus' death and resurrection. So uh, this is a wonderful Gospel. Uh, 16 chapters, dynamic, fast-moving, and filled not, so, not only with drama, but with great tension and, and even tragedy, the tragedy of the figure of Jesus and the tragedy of the disciples. This introduction, having uh, a sense of what Mark is on about, some of the key themes and the narrative outline of the Gospel, I now invite you to join me as we move deeper into the Gospel itself over the next 15 episodes or 15 podcasts. The next episode, podcast number two, will look at the social and domestic context of Mark particularly the first verse and the closing verse of the Gospel. Then in podcast three or episode three, we'll begin to move into Mark, the first 15 verses. In episode four, we'll go from chapter one to chapter three as Jesus forms the household of, of the disciples. Then in episode five, we'll look back over the first three chapters and summarize, get a bit of a sense of what Mark is on about in these first three chapters. And then in episode six, we'll look at chapters three to six. In episode seven, podcast number seven, we'll look at chapters six to eight of the gospel. That moves us to chapter to podcast eight, to chapters eight to ten, where we look at the catechism of discipleship. That leads us then into Jerusalem, with chapters 11 to 13, concluding in chapter 13 with the apocalyptic chapter and Mark's injunction to keep awake. That sets up then the final three chapters of the Gospel, 14 to 16. The podcast following episode 9, namely podcast 10, will present an overview of the Gospel's final chapters before we launch into the uh, passion, death and the resurrection narrative of Jesus in what I consider four acts. Act 1, episode number 11, we'll look at chapters 30 to 14. Podcast 12 looks at the second act of Mark's passion narrative in 14, chapters 14 to 15. In podcast 13, we'll look at the act 3 of Mark's passion narrative, particularly the death scene of Jesus. That leads us then to the final chapter of Mark, what I consider Act 4 of Mark's Passion Narrative, in podcast 14, looking at chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. I'd like to then, after that, offer a concluding overview of Mark's Passion Narrative in the 15th podcast, and finally, in 
the final podcast of this series on Mark's Gospel, we'll look back over the whole of the Gospel, isolating key themes in the light of the, the wonderful narrative that Mark constructs for us. I welcome you. I hope you enjoy being with me as we explore this wonderful Gospel that is so powerful.